So, I'm Gary Chartier, um, and I'm an anarchist. Hi, I'm Gary, and I'm an anarchist. Non-Serbian Media presents an interview from one of our early projects, available previously only on our YouTube channel. Exploring Anarchism 2016 with Gary Chartier on Law, Higher Education, and Tactics. Um, I, uh, I teach a variety of things at La Sierra University in Riverside, where I'm also the Associate Dean of the Tom and Visapar School of Business, and I do research mainly these days related to law and ethics and politics. I do some other work in other areas of philosophy, but mainly, mainly in those. What is anarchism and why are you an anarchist? Well, so anarchism, I, you know, people mean different things by it. I take anarchism to be the project of doing without the state, uh, the project that is of organizing our lives on the basis of peaceful, voluntary cooperation. Uh, that certainly uh, uh, has to be understood in light of the fact that the state isn't the only entity that ever engages in violence or gets in the way of peaceful voluntary cooperation. And so being an anti-statist isn't enough. The mafia obviously could make your life pretty miserable even without the state. But I think that the state is the most serious uh, problem for people who want a peaceful voluntary society. I'm an anarchist because I like peace, because I like voluntary interaction, because I think people are creative and can come up with solutions that top-down planners can't, because I see states engage in so much mischief on behalf of entrenched ideologies and elites. I feel like giving people the freedom to work, work out their uh, problems on their own and together in cooperative settings rather than in light of some top-down authority means we'll have better solutions and we'll avoid the problems states create. So can you tell us how in a stateless society law could exist at all? Well, so anthropologists will differ about where uh, we want to draw the line in terms of when a society has law and when it doesn't, but it's certainly common, I think, if we read uh, literature and cultural anthropology to note that societies uh, that don't have what we would call states nonetheless have what we would call laws. Um, the fact is that if you have uh, norms that people endorse and that and you have mechanisms for uh, enforcing those, for ensuring that when they're violated there are ways of dealing with that, you got law. And I think What's clear is that people without top-down control for a whole range of reasons can support and maintain norms, and I think people can also accept, and this is important, kind of second-order norms about enforcement procedures. And uh, when they do that, when there is uh, enough endorsement of enforcement procedures uh, that those are treated as legitimate, because I think part of Part of law, it seems to me, is this recognition that something is legitimate, that it's not just a naked exercise of power. Then, um, at that point, there can be stable mechanisms for dispute resolution and law enforcement uh, that don't have to be directed by a central authority. They can be, and this is the expression that you get in both economists and in social scientists of other kinds, in anthropologists and so forth, law can be polycentric, that you can have instead of a single legal authority in a given geographic area, you can have a variety of institutions with overlapping jurisdictions and mandates that in various ways negotiate out their relationships with each other and their relationships with particular people. When that happens, uh, you can have law, systems in which law is maintained uh, even without, uh, without Leviathan. Can you tell me why you support markets instead of supporting capital? Yeah, so, as we know, 
words are messy and complicated, and philosophers like to pretend that uh, it's easy to tidally define words, but I think we know from both empirical work in language and from philosophy of language, it's just not the case. And so there are people who use the word capitalism and mean something quite benign by it, but lots of other people do not, and our goal is to try to avoid um, endorsement of the non-benign things that people mean. So sometimes people will just mean in talking about capitalism, um, you know, private property and markets. Well, okay, that's fine. But sometimes we find people instead meaning things like all existing property titles are fine, or the people in charge of the economic system are there because they're, you know, this is really what a free market would produce, when in fact uh, the existing uh, uh, market arrangements we have are riddled with politically secured privilege. Um, and so we want to emphasize that we want to use uh, William Gillis's great phrase, freed markets, that is liberated markets, markets that are liberated from the privileges that distort what's going on in current market processes in all kinds of ways, and the past injustices are remedied, ongoing privileges are eliminated, and so by, by distinguishing what we're uh, talking about from, quote, capitalism, instead of saying instead we want freed markets, First of all, I think we have a great kind of rhetorical and pedagogical opportunity to emphasize that we're not endorsing the status quo. And uh, we think it's quite important to stress that because so much opposition to markets comes, I think, from the fear that, that bad things people see around them today are predictable outcomes of market interactions when they fail to take into account the degree to which the markets that are producing those interactions are distorted in various ways. What role does academia pay, uh, play in furthering anarchism's cause? Okay, so it seems to me that we have to be very much aware of the degree to which um, research funding by the state shapes what goes on in, in many, many institutions. Funding by the state in general shapes what, what goes on in many institutions because, of course, there's a whole host of regulations that comes along with um, accepting uh, that, that state money. Uh, but in addition to that, we know that there are captive markets for the products of higher educational institutions uh, created by licensing requirements and accreditation requirements that depend on uh, the possession of uh, licenses that in turn uh, can come only with uh, uh, you know, accredited educational backgrounds and so forth. So I think that there are certainly reasons to regard the existing higher education market with, uh, with some suspicion. Um, at the same time, I think we might also want to recognize that long before there were the same sorts of licensing requirements and accrediting requirements, and long before there was government research money and so forth, um, there were higher educational institutions going back, you know, 1,500 or more years. And I think what that reflects is a kind of twofold benefit that those institutions were perceived to offer. Uh, first of all, that learning happens very often in conversation, it happens with, with groups of people coming together, and also that there's some value in institutions that encourage people to think and write about important issues and ideas. Societies like in one way or another, I think most people in societies on one level or another, if they don't have to pay too, pay too much for it, would like there to be folks thinking about uh, a variety of issues in, in science and history and philosophy and so forth, and universities provide the opportunity for that to happen. 
happen. Now we recognize that one key difference between what was true 1500 years ago and now is that physical institutions are less important. I still think that face-to-face -face interactions matter for things that we want to accomplish, but I am sure we're going to see higher education changed dramatically by the increasing ability to have distributed educational models that don't depend on, on physical campuses. I'm enough of a dinosaur that, you know, my, you know, I'm almost 50, I'll be 50 in a couple of months, and who I am has been shaped for, you know, uh, my entire adult life by engagement with higher education, and I expect that uh, if I were uh, old enough, young enough that I'd have to kind of live through those changes over longer, a longer period than I probably will, I, I'm sure I would find that disruptive, but I get that it's very important to open up the possibilities that are created by um, making uh, a broader range of educational opportunities available with technology and, and so forth. But I do really think, I guess I'll just say at the same time, that institutions in general uh, that do both provide uh, kind of immersion in particular intellectual traditions and also serve to create and extend those traditions, uh, that can be helpful. With regard to anarchism then, there clearly are people who use the freedom provided by the opportunity to uh, uh, study and, and teach in educational settings to come up with and share radical ideas. One of the interesting things about C4SS, the Center for Stateless Society, of which I'm a senior fellow, is the way in which it's a mix of such people. That there are people like me and Roderick Long who have quite conventional academic birth and then there are other people like William Gillis or Charles Johnson or Sheldon Richmond who uh, really have not been part of those academic environments. Somebody like Kevin Carson, perhaps a kind of extreme example, you know, where some of the rest of us at least are paid to write, like Sheldon, or, or to edit. You know, Kevin works as a hospital orderly and writes huge academic books on the side. So I, I think there's a range of possibilities. Um, but I do think that the, the institutions, despite the obvious flaws that I'm happy to admit they have, have still created some space in which uh, uh, anarchist thinking and activism has occurred. We're here at the University of Oklahoma where uh, there's a really active Students for a Stateless Society chapter that's uh, been involved in, I think, radicalizing local libertarians and challenging uh, anarchists from other backgrounds and so forth. Uh, probably it would have been harder to make that happen without this institutional setting. So uh, I haven't given up on the university, even as at the same time I recognize that it's, it's got big changes coming. To what extent should libertarians concern themselves with non-state oppression such as racism and sexism? Yeah, so, um, there's a lot to say about this and, there, and I'd want to say it under a couple of different heads. So, you might think about an instrumental concern and about an intrinsic concern. So, instrumentally, you might think, um, there are reasons to be worried about these things insofar as they are in one way or another um, detrimental to the cause of achieving liberty. So if you think, for instance, that, I don't know, let's just take an extreme example. Let's say you're in 1929 Germany. Um, if somebody had been able to really change the cultural dynamic so that uh, fear and hatred of Jews wasn't there to the same degree would have made it much harder for a dictatorial regime to come to power over the next few years that rooted its uh, uh, activities in obviously hostility to the French, but also in, in uh, rampant, blatant anti-Semitism. So you might think there are, there are connections between different kinds of bad behavior 
uh, on the part of state actors, and in one way or another, they can use those concerns uh, to uh, with uh, you know various kinds of non-state uh, misbehavior uh, to. Well, the non-state misbehavior can feed bad state behavior. So that's, I guess, the kind of thing I'm thinking about in connection with the Nazis. So you can think about a number of instrumental, uh, I think, probably concerns of that kind. Um, you know, you might think that part of the process of raising consciousness for people is alerting them to one kind of problem. And if you only in, you know, doing that maybe provides a way into talking about other things. But those are all instrumental. And I don't think those are unreasonable uh, ways to think about the connection between libertarianism and these kinds of non-state uh, activities. But also, I think there are more, more intrinsic uh, concerns. Um, and I'll just talk about two of those. One, I think, the underlying kind of moral vision seems to me that uh, to which uh, libertarianism is responsive is an idea that we can talk about in different ways, but that certainly seems to involve the idea that people have equal rights and equal authority. Uh, and by equal authority, I mean the, the, the kind of, you know, it's another way I think of putting the point that people are fundamentally self-owners, that you get to decide uh, you know, who you are, what's going to happen to your life, that someone else doesn't have the entitlement to decide and under ordinary circumstances for you. Um, and so whether you think about that in terms of equal rights or equal authority or something else, there's, if you think about what would make sense of that claim, it seems like the idea has to be that there's a kind of fundamental sort of moral and political equality. And that doesn't mean that everybody's character is equally good, or everybody's achievements are equally good. People obviously aren't equal in those ways, but that there's a kind of moral core uh, the, of personhood uh, that merits respect that's equal. And if you think that's the case, then it seems to me it's going to be a natural outgrowth of that kind of moral attitude to look at people on the basis of ethnicity or gender or you know, sexual identity, whatever, and say whatever those differences are, there's still something fundamentally here uh, that's, uh, that's equal in virtue of which it makes sense uh, to treat people in a fair and considerate way that doesn't depend on these, these, other, these other factors. Um, you know, you might think about this also as an expression of a kind of deep ideal of individualism. So you think about Ayn Rand's observation that racism is the worst form of collectivism, that if you're an individualist, um, you know, yes, you can be a narrowly political individualist and not think about the broader social consequences, but if you think about individualism as an attitude rooted in this fundamental sense of people as uh, you know, certainly very different in lots of ways, but at some deep level, uh, you know, uh, equal in, in status, then I think that's going to prompt you to, uh, to be concerned about uh, uh, the kind of collectivist erasure of, of those differences and, uh, and oppression of people. And uh, obviously that doesn't mean you handle that in the same way you handle it with state oppression. It's not something that's uh, uh, an instance of the misuse of force. And so you obviously need to be careful and nonviolent and respectful in the ways you deal with these things. But I think they ought to be matters of concern because of this fundamental point about, about, about equality. The other thing I'd say in that connection is there's a kind of libertarian ideal, which is an ideal of of freedom, of non-domination, of, to use a, a technical expression, not being pushed around. And I think that um, many times people are drawn to libertarianism precisely because they don't want to be pushed around and don't want to see other people pushed around. 
And I think it's not unnatural at all for people to, who have that attitude to see analogies between um, nonviolent mistreatment and violent mistreatment. And even if they recognize that there's something special about violence insofar as force is the only thing we can reasonably respond to with force, nonetheless, they might see important analogies of various kinds uh, that might really trouble them and that they might respond to. And I guess I, I, that's the way I experience things. Um, so, what advice would you have for anarchists looking to make anarchy come to fruition? This is a question about tactics and strategy. How do we get from here to there? So, I think I think it's a really hard question because I think there is a the two things. There's kind of institutional momentum in favor of maintaining states, and I think there's a kind of ideological momentum. People just assume that the current state of affairs is natural. We've had something like the modern state system for the last 500 years, and it's just kind of embedded in the way people think about stuff. And of course, there were there were certainly governments, even if there weren't states before that. People listen to stories of you know the Middle Ages, and they don't recognize that the Middle Ages were you know marked by the presence of polycentric law. They just think, wow, you know, there were kings and stuff. And so yeah, we have democracies now, but it's you know states are there. So there's this institutional ideological momentum, and I think you have to challenge that. Um, I'm skeptical, I start out by saying, I'm skeptical that you challenge it with electoral politics. I think there are people who really believe that's helpful. I don't think they're evil. I, I don't buy the, the view that somehow if you're involved in electoral politics, you therefore treat everything the state does as legitimate or even everything a candidate you might like does as le legitimate. I don't think that's right. You might be very defensive in your strategy. You're just trying to avoid causing certain problems and moving beyond certain kinds of bad things that states do. So it's not that kind of you know bright line ideological purist objection, but I just think the reality is um, it's very ineffective. And not only is it ineffective, but it tends to divert people's energies into this ineffective activity. And not just, I'm not just talking about the people who get involved in campaigns, I mean, and this is the most troubling thing, the people who sit in their living rooms and find that they can't help but cheering for a team in one way or another. And the birth of that team spirit, I think, frankly, kills people's capacity to think critically and uh, often serves to kind of dull and deaden their faculties and lead them to just dive into a, uh, a kind of uh, endorsement of the current political system that really I think uh, is uh, most unfortunate. So uh, my approach wouldn't therefore focus on that. I, you know, maybe in a particular case somebody could make a strategic case for that, fine, but uh, it's not a general strategy I'd favor. I think that in broad terms I would say there's ongoing need for kind of breaking the stranglehold of that uh, ideology that supports the state. Uh, so I think communicating uh, at multiple levels, all the way from theoretical tracts to just random conversations on the subway. So I wouldn't say electoral politics was the main thing. Like I said, uh, it seems to me there's some real advantage to thinking about uh, uh, kind of personal relationships that really give you a chance to put your values on display. Because I think a lot of people are scared of anarchists and cynical about libertarians, and I think it's nice to, to really show uh, what we're really made of. Um, but I actually think the, the two strategies that are likely to be most effective aren't easy, uh, but I think uh, none of this is likely to be altogether easy. So, you know, they're not what I do, right? My work is very much at this level of kind of ideological delegitimation and, uh, uh, you know, coming around preaching to the choir in places like this. But I think um, two things that matter. First of all, 
putting on alternatives on display, I think, is hugely important. Uh, it seems to me that being able to show what communities look like when they are not organized on the basis of top-down control and, and aggression, um, that's hugely important. And so that I think the ventures that started in the 70s, you know, trying to create, quote, libertarian countries, I think often were just kind of silly exercises and people were hunting for tax shelters and so forth. But the basic, the underlying idea seems to me really right, that what we know, if we know anything about social change, is that the scariest thing for the status quo is seeing that there are viable alternatives. Not hearing it asserted that there are viable alternatives, but seeing that there are viable alternatives. Because if people can look at an alternative and say, even if it's not perfect, there's something very attractive about some features of that that I'd like to see replicated, that's, I think, how, things, how ideas spread. And so, um, you know, the Seasteading Institute's work, the work of people trying to create, you know, free cities in Central America and so forth. I mean, none of those ideas is perfect, but I think there's something really useful about that as a way of exploding the consciousness of the public by showing that it's not really uh, the case that uh, kind of the state-driven status quo is the only uh, possibility. The other thing, uh, and I think one needs to be really careful in talking about this, uh, definitely not urging anyone uh, within the sound of my voice to get uh, get in trouble with the authorities. Uh, uh, you know, please, uh, you know, uh, please think responsibly. But um, the other thing that really strikes me as likely to be most effective in leading to change, the most effective thing we can do, is, you know, through those efforts that try to tunnel around and under the state. So the creation of alternate mechanisms for, um, you know, for various kinds of things. Uh, clearly, the cryptocurrency movement is an obvious example of this, uh, but other kinds of efforts, uh, you know, the uh, just the wide, increasingly widespread use of encryption technology opens up a variety of opportunities for people to uh, transact uh, outside the uh, the state's purview. The more you can make the state irrelevant to people's lives and the more you can shed its control uh, in your day-to-day -day existence, um, the less significant it becomes. And so, you know, it's like, what if they gave a state and nobody came? You know, at some point, uh, you know, that's, I think, going to matter a great deal. So, you know, as David Friedman has suggested, there's a kind of ongoing competition between those seeking privacy and those seeking to interfere with privacy. And there's an ongoing back and forth as the technology develops and it's not, it's not gonna stop. So I think that's, you know, that's also significant. Uh, then the, the, the uh, attempt in various ways to create alternatives, not so much for purposes of display, but for purposes of evasion, okay? Um, and rendering irrelevant. You know, you think about the ways in which, um, you know, just, a, you know, say a group like Food Not Bombs uh, very nonviolently might, uh, you know, try to simply displace what a state does in the social services arena. Um, so the other thing I would say, and it's not something we can do, but it's something the state can do to itself, states overreach. And uh, uh, certainly I think if... You know, so the American empire, it seems to me if it's not careful, is clearly going to bankrupt itself. 
the attempt to operate an empire of bases, you know, 700 to 900 bases around the world to maintain you know, seven wars at the same time uh, to do all of the uh, interventions in the economy that are sought at the macro level as part of a, you know, misguided effort to achieve macro stabilization. All of those things, it seems to me, are going to put increasing pressure on, uh, uh, you know, on, on states. And we might also expect that one driver of change will be the realization that this dramatic growth in the size and scope of state power that we've seen over the past, you know, say 150 years, uh, really is not going to prove ultimately sustainable. So, um, but that's not something we can do directly, it's just something probably we can watch. Yeah, so um, lots, of, lots of great things out there that, uh, you know, reflect uh, broader anarchist and libertarian concerns of various kinds. My own uh, uh, self-promotional speech here is uh, go check out the work of the Center for Stateless Society at c4ss.org. Uh, check out the book Markets Not Capitalism, which you referred to earlier uh, by using its title. Um, and the simple way to find that is probably just to Google Markets Not Capitalism PDF. Uh, and uh, you will find uh, at least one, uh, one online version of uh, the almost final version of that very helpful collection of historical and contemporary essays on, uh, uh, on market anarchism uh, rooted in the uh, kind of the 19th century individualist anarchists and their successors. Um, my own stuff, of course, uh, I'm happy to promote. Um, my academic book on this topic is called Anarchy and Legal Order. Um, it's long and uh, still, unfortunately, fairly expensive. Fortunately, there is a paperback out now. Uh, at a more popular level, I've, I've also written a book called The Conscience of an Anarchist that I think is uh, a short, crisp, and readable introduction to the kind of anarchism I would promote. So uh, c4ss.org, Markets Not Capitalism, The Conscience of an Anarchist, those would probably be the things I would immediately refer people to. There are lots of others, but I think those are uh, those are portals. So the uh, uh, conscience of an anarchist has a long annotated bibliography full of many other things people might look at. C4SS points people to lots of, uh, of other things. Oh, and there's also um, the Alliance of the Libertarian Left online, uh, lots and lots of, uh, of links that uh, we provide there as well. So those are some places people might want to start. Thanks to Gary Chartier, Students for a Stateless Society, the organizers of Exploring Anarchism 2016, and the original non-Servian media crew for making this interview possible. And a big thanks to our Patreon community whose ongoing support makes all of our work possible. If you would like more content like this in the world, you can help sustain and grow the non-Servian media collective by becoming a Patreon supporter yourself. To watch the original video interview, or any one of our 100 plus other videos covering topics from anarchist and anti-authoritarian perspectives, head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Connect with non-Servium Media on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.